We need to turn the PowerPoint on, and yay! We were struggling with that before, before services started. It was not uh, plugging in, so I'm glad to see that uh, we're working there. We're going to begin this morning, and in fact, uh, um, every time I preach this month, Lord willing that I preach every time that I'm preaching this month, (laughs) we will be doing the book of Revelation, whether Sunday morning or Sunday evening. Most of the time, we'll eventually be doing this primarily and maybe almost only on Sunday evenings. But in the beginning, I wanted us to get us a good start, and this is a part of Revelation that is not uh, overly difficult, and I wanted to get us all involved in in this study. We as a group of believers uh, throughout the country, really, have neglected the book of Revelation. Oh, it's been taught, and lots of things have been written on it, and things like that. But the average Christian typically does not sit down and say, well, I think my next study personally will be Revelation. You can correct me if you're wrong on that, but (laughs) if I'm wrong on that, but I would imagine that's mostly the case. And most of my life, that has has been the case uh, in my experience with, with, uh, with most Christians. That is, that's not good, is it? Well, I think we would all admit that. that that's not good. Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Revelation has 22 chapters. It's a major part of the New Testament. It's a major part of the Bible. And it references a huge number of other texts throughout the scriptures, especially in the prophets in the Old Testament. One of the reasons that we studied Daniel on Wednesday nights in our final quarter uh, last year was so that we could be better prepared for what we're going to study here in the book of Revelation. I hope for your sake especially and for the sake of this body of believers that you devote yourself to this study, which means that you do everything you can to be a part of each study, that you come and don't miss any of them, because in doing so, you will get lost. Did you hear me? I'm serious about this. We as a group of people need to devote ourselves together in doing the studies that we do, and there's a lot of work that goes into these studies, whether it's by me or Drew, or Jacob, or any of the others who speak. And we need to devote ourselves to that, and I urge you to do that, and especially with this book of Revelation. You need to know this book, and you need to know it so well that you look forward to just in your daily studies saying, I think I'll go refresh myself in some things in Revelation. You won't believe the encouragement that you will get. You won't believe the excitement that will come from this particular study. You and I cannot survive well the attack of Satan without an understanding of this book. This is about Satan's attack. This is all about Satan's attack. Not only toward us, toward God's kingdom, toward God himself, and we are part of his armies that is discussed in this great book. So 
let's, let's put our minds to this. Let's get into this. And to this morning and this evening, we're going to do an introduction, and I hope it stirs your excitement for it. Let's begin by, by pointing out a few things. First, what kind of book is Revelation? What kind of book is it? You know, when you study any kind of book of the Bible, it is important to understand how to read it. <laughs> In other words, I need to recognize that there is a certain way to read different books of the Bible. When Jesus would teach the people, we saw over and again where Jesus would, the, the writer uh, speaking of Jesus would say, and Jesus spoke a parable to them. Now, what if he hadn't have said he spoke a parable to them and we read the story? We would have read the story of the sower and we'd have said, hmm, that's interesting. Let's go on. No, this is a parable. I'm supposed to learn something out of this story. It's not just about somebody who threw seed on the ground. It's the same thing with the book of Revelation. We need to understand how to read it correctly. There are dozens and dozens of dozens of preconceptions about the book. When we enter studying the book with a preconception, then we're going to get messed up. We need to accept how the writer tells us to read the book, and that's where we want to begin this morning. So John actually tells us that there are three things. There's three descriptions that he gives on how to read this great book. First, description is given right there in verse 1 when he simply says the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so you look at the word, of course, revelation, and you see how John even describes this as a revelation in verse 1 when he says, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So you notice the lineage? You notice the chain of command here, so to speak? You have God giving it to Christ, Christ giving it to an angel, an angel giving it to John, and John revealing it to, his, to the servants of God. There is a chain of command. There is a chain of delivering this particular message. It is a revelation. We will talk more about that in a moment. It is revealing, though. And so secondly, he tells us in verse 3 that this is a prophecy. He says this, this, when he speaks of it, he's blessed the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. But when we think of prophecy, how do you hear those words? Oftentimes when you think of prophecy, you're, you're primarily thinking of foretelling something. But actually throughout Scripture, anytime we see the word prophecy, we should not think of just simply foretelling something in the future. But we should think of forthtelling. In other words, a prophet is simply, as we read in the book of Exodus, a mouthpiece for God. And so when Moses spoke, he was a prophet. He was a mouthpiece for God. And Moses spoke of things past, things present, and things to come. That's what a prophet does. And so this is a prophecy. He will speak of things that are, that pass, and things that are to come. All of those ingredients then are there in the prophecy. If you compare that to chapter 1 and verse 19, he gives us a very clear uh, understanding of that. Write, therefore, the things you have seen. Notice the past tense. Write the things you have seen. Those that are, 
Notice the present tense. And then those that are to take place after this. That's a great definition of what revelation does. Now, John, I want you to write the things you've seen, the things that are going on now, and I want you also to write about the things that you're about to see that are going to take place after this. Secondly, it's important that God is not, we do not want to approach this book thinking, okay, God is going to give us a history of the world until the end of time. That's very common today. When I was growing up, well, I remember the preacher giving, using the book of Revelation to tell a history of the Roman Catholic Church and all, and all that came out of that. And, and that, he, he had it all down pat throughout the book of Revelation. And, and of course, my first thought was, how in the world did that help the people of the first century to whom it was being written? Well, it didn't. <laughs> it would have had nothing to do with them. And so let's keep this in context and understand that there is a message to the first century Christians as we read the book. This is not just God saying, I'm going to tell you of the history of the things to come. That is not his purpose. And also, we need to understand that you, when you see these first few words, notice that in, in verse 3, he says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. You know, the older version simply said, blessed is the, is the person who reads this. And we would read it and we would think, oh, it's a blessing on each of us who take our Bible and open it and read it. Well, there's certainly some truth to that. But he is speaking about the reader to the congregation. In this day and time of, of, of the first century, only about 15% of the population could read or write. And so every church had a reader. He would stand up and he'd take the letter that had been given and he would read it to the church. So we need to think of this as a letter that was being read during worship to the congregation. Can you imagine if I stood up this morning? I thought about it. <laughs> stood up this morning and said, we are this morning. The lesson is I'm going to read to you the book of Revelation." And some of you would have thought that was cool, and some of you would have thought, oh, goodness, let me out of here. <laughs> and, and I understand. We're not accustomed to concentrating about and just hearing, are we? Might have, been, might have been all right if we had a cartoon going on behind us showing all the pictures of Revelation as I was reading. That would be a little more interesting for most of us because that's what we're accustomed to. But this is something that was done in worship. It was done for comfort. It was done for instruction. And it certainly was done also for warning these Christians. And then thirdly, John says this is a letter. Look at verses 4 through 6. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Uh, and grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits that are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And so you, you notice, this is a typical way a letter starts, isn't it? The Apostle Paul started his letters in a very similar way, telling you who the author was, in this case John, and from whom this letter is coming, and to whom this letter is being, is being given. In fact, if you, uh, if you notice even further than that, you see in verse 11, uh, he was told, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And then he lists these seven churches in Asia. 
obviously, all the characteristics of a letter. In chapter 22 and verse 21, he ends Revelation with, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Ending of a letter. This is very typical. So we're thinking about this as revelation. We're thinking about this as prophecy. And we're thinking about this as a personal letter to these churches. And that's extremely important for us. And we need to understand, of course, that this is not just information. It is not just, let me tell you what's going to happen. There are also commands in this book. Notice verse 3, when he gives a blessing at the end of the verse, for those who hear and those who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And so there are things in the book that need to be heard and need to be assimilated into us and kept. There are commands in this book. And so all of this should be part of how we're thinking when we read this. And we need to note, too, that this letter is not simply written to the seven churches that are listed. It's written to them, but not exclusively to them. We know that because at the end of every single one of the personal messages in chapters 2 and 3, the Spirit says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. <laughs> if you have an ear to hear, whether in that time or that time on and to this day, we are to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that is extremely important. Okay, so what is the purpose? What should we be looking for that is the purpose of then this, this great book? Um, First and foremost, we need to talk about the word revelation. Greek word for revelation, apocalypsis, and you recognize that because we get from that our English word apocalypse. And when you think of apocalypse, what do you think of? Well, you know, I, I think of Bruce Willis in a movie where the meteor was coming to the earth and it was going to blow it up. That's apocalypse. <laughs> and so there's, there's all kinds of end time and explosion and, and those sorts of images that come out of the word apocalypse. However, the Greek word apocalypse, and you have to do a very deep study of this and look up many Greek dictionaries to discover the meaning, and after you've looked them all up, you will find that it means re revelation, just revealing. It's very simple. That's all it is. To reveal something. To make something known that was unknown. When God reveals something, in fact, the word is used in other places in the New Testament in the verb form and in the Old Testament. For example, when Jacob came back to Bethel after being in Padanaram for 20 years, he stopped at Bethel and, and the scripture says, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Apocalypsis, <laughs> in the verb form at least. And so there you have that. Paul in Galatians 1.16 makes reference to how that God had revealed his son to me. And so we don't need to think in, in uh, elaborate terms when we think of, 
an apocalypse or an apocalyptic uh, illustration or apocalyptic material. Now, there is a connotation that has been gone, of course, across uh, Christians uh, for quite some time. When we refer to apocalyptic literature, we think of this, this, the, uh, uh, the visions and symbols that were in Daniel or were, uh, are in Ezekiel or in Zechariah, which are notable for that. And then, of course, in the book of Revelation, which is especially notable for it. And, and we think that way. But remember, this is a special kind of revealing the revealing then is taking place differently than just a straightforward telling us what is going on. This is what God is doing. God is taking us and showing us things then from heaven's point of view, giving us heaven's perspective from that. That's nice. That's important. Our perspective is very earth, earthly. We look at things around us, and I'm sure everyone here, we get quite disturbed as we see America rapidly changing and sinfulness rising and good being called evil and evil being called good. Uh, all of those things are disturbing to us. And so what God does is He takes us away from seeing the dragon's perspective, he takes us up into heaven and he says, let me show you my perspective. Let me give you a picture of not only how I see things, but what I'm doing and what I'm about to do also concerning these things. So that's, that, is, that is something that we need to understand. We're going to be able to see things from God's perspective. Just think of how great this is. We are transported, beginning in chapter 4 and verse 1, we are transported with the Apostle John up into heaven. I think that's so cool to see the Scripture saying a door is open to heaven. Woo! Go on up. Now, you get to now see things from a different light. And when we get there, we see a lamb, and we see the Lion of Judah, and we see angelic mediators and powers, and we see uh, political powers, and we see judgments, and we see a new creation. Everything is different than what we were seeing down below, and especially we're seeing that God is in control. And that God is active. And God is not on vacation. He's not sleeping. He's not unaware of what is going on in their lives or in our lives today. He's not unaware of the political climate. He is not unaware of who's leading and ruling in various nations. He's quite aware of these things. And He's working these things all to His glory. And it is not something that we need to be disturbed about. And finally, I would suggest that the purpose of Revelation is to cause us to conquer. God has guaranteed us in the book of victory. But He's also challenged each and every Christian to conquer, or as the old version would say, to overcome. And at the end of all seven messages to the seven churches, He uses those terms, to Him who conquers. 
there is a conquering aspect of this. There's a winning aspect that each of us as Christians have a responsibility then to do. And the book of Revelation is helping us to be able to do that conquering. So very significant. And then, thirdly, let's talk a little bit about the symbolism in the book of Revelation. You will notice that in verse 1 that most of the Bibles that you're using, maybe uh, here, would say at the end of verse 1, He made it known by sending His angel to His servant John. But if you're reading any of the translations I've listed up here, King James, New King James, American Standard, Holman Christian Standard, all of them said He sent and signified it to uh, His servant John by an angel to his servant John. Now that word signified just means to make known, yes, but it is also a special word that when used by the apostle John has a greater meaning than to just tell you something. We know that because in the book of Revelation, John uses many words and phrases that he also used in his gospel and in his letters for second third john and he uses them also in the book of revelation so in this idea here signified from that is the same derivative of the word that is translated in the gospel john as signs now we've studied the first eight chapters of john in the sermons that i've done last year planning on continuing that soon but for now we're taking a break, but I wanted you to rem be reminded, what's a sign in the Gospel of John? Well, you say it's a miracle. Oh, but it's not just a miracle, is it? It is a miracle that I'm supposed to see past the event itself and understand that there is a greater message than just, wow, he multiplied bread and fish to 5,000 people and fed them. There is a greater message. In fact, Jesus goes ahead and tells us the greater message. I am the bread of life. If you thought that was something, you need to see what I can give you spiritually. So there is a greater message. The same thing is true when John uses this word signified in the Greek, when he uses that word to say how this letter is being revealed. It's written in signs and symbols. I'm not supposed to see the sign or the symbol or the image and, and simply go, wow, that devil is really ugly. He's a dragon with uh, seven heads and ten horns and a bifurcated tail. That's cool. Let me draw a picture. No, we're supposed to see something. A message is given by that. And so in all of these things, then, we're not going to read the book of Revelation with the idea of these symbols and signs are literal things, he is giving us pictures of greater messages. You should think about it more in the idea of poetry. Poetry has that, doesn't it? There's elaborate words that, that give connotations of pictures in our minds that impress our hearts, that move us, that bring us to tears, that cause us to, to be more involved in the message instead of just a direct statement. Same thing with when you watch a Chinese parade. 
very similar, isn't it? Because all these, these crazy creatures are going down the road, and we don't just stop and just say, well, let's examine the details of each of those things. No, he's saying there's a picture here. There's a symbol that you're supposed to see as you look at the whole. So we don't get too involved in simply some of the details that are seen in the, in the picture that is given. So, for, for example of this, uh, Satan, as we've mentioned, is pictured as, I don't know how many of you have ever thought about this uh, when we were reading Daniel, but Satan is pictured as a dragon, and his allies are pictured as beasts, gaudy beasts terrible creatures and you saw it in the book of book of daniel now what did the babylonian empire look like and then what did the persian empire look like and then what the greek empire what the roman empire all of them had beastly images and in the midst of the beastly images you saw one like the son of man who came to the ancient of days and there was presented to him a kingdom and power and authority. Ooh. Reminds me of the book of Second Peter. When Peter starts out and by saying he has granted you to be partakers of the divine nature. Woo. And then in chapter 2 he says, on the other hand, those who are following Satan are brute beasts. Un. Uh, un, unreasoning animals. We see some unreasoning animals in our society, our world today. Goodness. Yes. Absolutely acting animalistic. And so here is God bringing us up to the throne and He presents to us the opposite, a counter to the thousands of images we are constantly seeing around us today. When you were in the Roman Empire, when they were there, they saw architectural and images all around them, everywhere proclaiming the glory and greatness of Rome. And God says, let me, let me show you what they really look like. Let me give you counter images so that you really understand what the dragon's world sees and what they are like and what they are doing. And we are taken then to see things in reality as God tears away the veneer of this culture and shows us what's really going on in, in the world. How does that help us? Well, instead of looking at the images that are constantly battering our brains, God gives us replacement images. He gives us images that are good and healthy. He gives us images that show the deceit of what the dragon is doing. And at the same time gives us images that we can concentrate on and glory in and be excited about. We're able to see the throne. We're able to see the, the, uh, the, the sea of glass before the throne. We're able to see 24 elders casting their crowns before the throne and saying, holy, holy, you, God, are worthy. We're able to see what really is important. 
So God in the book, in the symbolism, gives us counter pictures so that we can see it better. Rome was pictured in all its glory throughout the empire. And yet when God describes her, he calls her and says she's a prostitute. He describes her as a prostitute, a seductive witch who uses her power and wealth to deceive the world and get honor and worship to herself, dripping blood of the saints out of her mouth. But how does that compare to a lamb who was slain to ransom his people from sin? See the contrast. This is what God is doing for us as we, as we think about and see the message and pictures and it becomes more exciting as the book uh, goes on. Finally, what is revelation to us? What should it be to us? And there's a lot we could say here, but I'm going to be very concise about, about this and we will follow up, of course, as we go through the book. First and foremost, this does not apply and I've mentioned this briefly, but it does not apply simply to the original audience or to the first two or three centuries following in, in the book of Revelation. In, in other words, we're not to read this uh, book as, again, just a history message, uh, and then we're done with it, and we re- think of Revelation, and we just say, oh yeah, well, you know, all that just happened, all that already happened. And we don't have to think about that anymore because all that already happened. No, no, uh, that would be an inappropriate way to see the book. For one thing, is there any book of the Bible in which God would say, I wrote this so that you could know what happened, but it's got absolutely nothing to do with you? Ah. <laughs> As the game show host would go, eh. <laughs> not so, not the way this works. Every book has a timeless message. Every book is written so that it makes us mature and brings us to maturity. It teaches us, encourages us, and rebukes us. So over and again, we need to see that in Revelation. Do not think of it as something that is only time past and simply some historical book. Secondly, we need to understand that the dragon and his allies still live. The dragon and his allies still are functioning. That has not not stopped. This is a timeless message. In fact, just read these words in chapter 12 and verse 17 as he comes to the conclusion of the picture that is going to describe the rest of the book. He says, the dragon became furious. This is after he was cast down from heaven and lost part of his power. He became furious with the woman, the woman being in this case the church and her offspring. He became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and in those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Dragon quit making war. Dragon not making war in your life? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Yes. You and I are in a war. That's a strong word. We're in a war. And we need the implements of war to win the battle. We We get casual. We get complacent. We think, oh, you know, this is not a big deal. 
You know, I, I've, I've got my little pocket knife and, and I can handle this. I'll do the sign of the Z on that dragon. Yeah, well, right. This is a war of the most powerful individual ever created that we are aware of. He is powerful. Michael's got him. But there's a lot of angels who are not as powerful as this dragon. And he is after us and after his kingdom, the God's kingdom. We need to appreciate that and understand he and his allies are still at work today. Thus, Revelation is still applicable today in that regard. And finally, I don't know how many of you remember, but when we were in Isaiah, it's been three or four years ago, but we looked at Isaiah 24, and Isaiah 24 and 25 have a contrast of cities. There was the world city, and then there was the future city of God. Just like in the book of Revelation. Babylon is pictured as, God, as the world city. Yes, it is at the moment in the first century describing Rome. And we're told that in chapter 12. Uh, or excuse me, in chapter, in chapter 17, at the very end. We're told that, that it's the great city who reigns over the earth. But Isaiah warns us, and so does Revelation, that this is not just Rome. This is every great power. This is the world city. We live. We live. Not in the United States of America particularly. We live in the world city. And we battle the world city. And many times the United States of America displays itself as the world city. Be aware. Do not fall into the culture. Because the dragon has its allies. And many times its allies are governmental powers. That's the picture that we'll see, especially when we get to Revelation 13. So it is applicable today. Here's the, here's the idea. Chapter 18, verse 24. After the world city, in this case Babylon, Rome, is destroyed, look what he says. There's an autopsy done. <laughs> and in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and all who have been slain on the earth. Do you remember Jesus saying similar things in Matthew 23 when he said to the Jews, all the blood that's been shed on the earth from Abel to Zechariah will come upon this generation because you have rejected the Messiah. So in essence, the world city has gone on since the very beginning. And God in the book of Revelation is picturing how he will bring that world city to an end and bring victory for his saints and bring us into the great new Jerusalem, the city of God. This clearly shows this is beyond just the first couple of centuries and beyond just the, just the Roman Empire. Tonight, we will look at introduction part two and look at a bigger picture in the scope of Revelation and hopefully also give you some time uh, to answer 
to, to ask questions uh, concerning anything I talked about this morning or, uh, or this evening. So I hope you'll be, be here for that, and we will enjoy that. We're going to sing a song right now. Any way we can help you and you want to make that known, please, you can step forward now while together we stand and while we sing.